And I was, I was just home and a friend of mine said, uh, oh, you should read this thing on, uh, on Nate Silver's site. I don't know if you, you probably don't like Nate Silver, but like you should, you should read this thing. I was like, what do you mean you don't like Nate Silver? He's like, you don't like statistics and stuff. I was like, I just interviewed Nate Silver. He's like, you interviewed Nate Silver? I said, yeah, for, for the podcast. He, he's like, what podcast? I was like, I do this thing called the Long Four Podcast. Jeffrey, welcome back to Writers Who Don't Write. Kyle, it's the first day of school and the first day back at the podcast. But, it's a day of firsts. But it, and also, we have some news to announce. Uh, this podcast was featured on iTunes from Apple as a new noteworthy podcast. Which might not be news now per se, because it happened about a month and a half ago. But it yeah. did happen in the interim between this podcast and the last podcast that we recorded. So if you are a new listener uh, who found us from iTunes recommendation, welcome. Uh, the show is super simple. We bring on a writer. We talk about their career. We talk about one story that they've struggled to tell so that Kyle and I can feel better about not writing. Uh, it has been really cool, really fun, successful. Uh, we've had a ton of interesting guests. Today, we have a guest that I'm super excited to announce, uh, Evan Ratliff who is the host of the Longform Podcast. He is a founder and uh, editor over at The Atavist Magazine, uh, or The Atavist. And he has a new book out called Love and Ruin. It's from W.W. Norton, uh, just out about a month ago. Um, it's actually a collection of uh, some of the most prestigious and well, most well-received uh, stories from Atavist. Um, put into a book form for the first time which is you know super interesting we get into the why and how of that in this interview uh, we also do a deep dive into long form atavist and a really cool story that kyle fell in love with front that was written by evan called the mastermind which you should absolutely read if you have the time and even if you don't find a way to squeeze it in it's wonderful so anyway don't forget to subscribe if you love us and here's evan Evan Ratliff is the editor of The Atavist magazine. His writing has appeared in prominent publications such as Wired, where he's a contributing editor, The New Yorker, and National Geographic. He's also the story editor of Pop-Up Magazine, which is a live event that takes place in Brooklyn and maybe elsewhere. Uh, and he is also the editor of a new collection from W.W. Norton called Love and Ruin. So welcome, Evan. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So wait, where does uh, Pop-Up Magazine happen? Pop-Up Magazine uh, predominantly happens in San Francisco. Oh. I'm actually, I'm not technically the story editor anymore. Someone else is. I'm the, I guess you'd call me the founding story editor. I still contribute a little bit. But it's, it mostly happens in San Francisco, but it's been on tour now three times, I think. And there's been two shows in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan. And then some up and down the West Coast as well and a couple in Chicago. Okay. I, I mean, I've only ever heard amazing things from uh, from people who have seen it. I've never been. And I also hear that you actually put like advertisements in the show. Yeah, there's live advertisements. So, I mean, the whole idea is that it's like a magazine presented live on stage. So one of the original concepts in it, which still is true today, is that there are advertisements which are also done live on stage. And sometimes they're 
done by the advertiser. Sometimes they're just, you know, done by someone in the show, which I guess is sort of like native advertising done live. Um, but some of the ones in San Francisco have been amazing. They've been like Sky Vodka with like a bartender rolls a bar onto the stage and has a special cocktail and describes how it's made and then says like, enjoy with Sky Vodka at the party after the show. And that's, hmm. that's the advertisement. It's kind of cool. I've uh, I've seen that you know like events brought to you by you know certain sponsors, but anyway, you know without getting into branded content too much, uh, my <laughs> Sky Vodka is not. Well, I'll talk about branded content all night, <laughs> but we are interested. Uh, I mean, I feel like most people know you, uh, you know, from the Atavist, but also as one of the hosts of the Longform Podcast, um, which is something that you know, if if I can be effusive for a minute. Uh, is you know one of the inspirations for Kyle and I as podcast writers who don't write. Um, I love what you all do. You know, bringing in these people that you admire so much, and you've had such amazing guests. And uh, you know, it's great for writers. It's great for people who just like consuming what these people write. Um, and you know, over the years, you guys have just become like master storytellers and interviewers, and you know exactly what questions to ask. So. I guess why? Well, can you, yeah, no, of course, and and I'm I'm really really stoked that we have you on the show, and and because you know it's going to be super helpful for us to learn from you, and also because you know I just have so many questions. Kyle actually yelled at me because our our note sheet is just so huge right now. Um, <laughs> well, this this might be one of the the episodes where we actually touch on podcasting way more than writing, which I think I'm fine with. Yeah. Well, so I guess yeah, that's the first I'll question. I'll on podcasting. You're you're initially a journalist um but i feel like the interviews that you've done for long form uh are kind of like their own long form pieces in and of themselves so is there a difference between audio storytelling and writing yeah i find that there's a huge difference and uh, one of the things that's fun about doing the podcast is that i still feel like it's something that i i don't really know how to do that well that i've i've sort of worked on developing my own style and trying to figure out how to do those interviews, but it's such a massive difference because when you're going and doing interviews for a written story, first of all, it doesn't matter at all what you sound like. So you can use all sorts of techniques where you sort of like sound like a moron or you repeat the same question, literally the same question over and over again. And when you're doing an interview that's recorded, you, you, you don't want to sound like a moron. I actually don't mind that much if I, if I sound like a moron, but you have to, take into account that you are also going to feature in it. So trying to, to set it up so that it's a conversation and not just a listening information is just an entirely different skill. And I feel like for these types of interviews, I feel like I've improved a lot, but if you go, I mean, if you listen to interviews from people, the best people in this American life are people who really, you know, do this stuff, like the way they do it is incredible. And it's, it's, it's a, somewhat translatable skill like being able to talk to someone being able to draw them out is something that's sort of universal but the the style of it is completely different i think you can see the evolution in your interview skills throughout uh you know you go i actually went back and listened to episode one the other day and and uh which was thankfully one of your interviews um but you know you you have kind of maintained the style and the mission of the podcast so i guess what have you in, in what ways have you grown? Well, I think at the beginning, I mean, like with anything where you're first starting out, particularly because I don't think any of us had ever done audio before. I mean, I'd been interviewed, but I'd never done anything for radio or anything like that. And I don't think the other co-hosts had either. 
at the beginning, first of all, it was just a project, you know, it was just like a thing that we thought, well, this will be interesting for us to do. And we sort of decided from the beginning, we'll, we'll do it for a certain period of time. We'll try it for a year and we won't care how many people listen, but I like talking to other writers. When we started, they, a lot of the people were friends of mine or friends of Max and Aaron's writers that we knew. And that's still the case. But at the beginning, I feel like I just thought, well, this will just be kind of like uh, just a conversation, like two guys in a bar, man, a woman in a bar, like people just like shooting the shit about the business and how they work. And it was just all a little bit formless in terms of, you know, interviews need to have a, a bit of a shape to them. Like they can't just be, uh, then I thought of this, then I thought of this. So I think over time, I don't, wouldn't say that I've become an expert in it, but I'm much better at, you know, thinking through, okay, how do I want this interview to go? Uh, these are the things I want to cover, but like, where do I want to take this conversation and thinking of it like a conversation that's going to have different stages to it and it's going to sort of lead to an ultimate point. So that's actually something that Kyle and I have been working on for a while. You know, we have a few ideas that are pretty consistent on the podcast, but um, it's certainly something that you know, we feel like we're still growing and, and trying to figure out. But one thing I, I was curious about long form um, is that you guys have created such a huge audience. Um, I'm wondering if the size of that audience uh, has kind of affected, um, I guess, the style of interview that you have, because, you know, right in the beginning, I'm sure it was much more like writerly and based on people, you know, in the media. But now it's it's just so much more than that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's affected it partly because I just, I honestly almost never think about it. Like the podcast is not, it's not my primary occupation. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's still like a side thing that's fun that I do with friends. I mean, it, we have sponsors, so it like has enough money that we can keep doing it. But because I think of it that way, I just almost don't think of the people listening. I mean, it's clear that there's a, group of people that's larger than just, you know, other writers listening to it. But I feel like it's people who must be interested in process, you know, how people work and how does someone get from, from point A to point B in their careers and in their lives and what does that take and sort of what have they encountered along the way and, and what difficulties and, you know, that kind of, that's what I want to know also. So maybe it just jibes with what I think the audience wants to know, or maybe I just want to be ignorant of what the audience really wants to know. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, <laughs> um, it's just like the thing that makes me most uh, nervous going in is just like having a good conversation with the person. And I want that person to come out and feel like they had a good conversation, not that they went into an interview. Like if someone writes a book, they will do, uh, particularly if it's like pretty successful they'll do, you know, 20, 30, 50 interviews with people who probably haven't read their book and who will ask him the same five questions over and over again. Yeah. And, th and that's my nightmare is that they walk out of this and say, oh, it was one of those. Like I want them to feel like this is something different. So that's really, it all kind of comes from that. Now, when you're trying to actually make it something different, how, how do you, how do you frame it to, to build it into that? You know, like, why does Max get this interview and you get that interview? And, uh, you know, why does Aaron, you know, interview Tanasi Coates while you interview Jessica Pressler or something? And I know that that's not what actually happened, but um, how do you decide? It's sort of 
people were interested in, I mean, there's so many writers. The funny thing is at the beginning, I think sometime in the first year we had this discussion about, well, what are we going to do when we run out of these people? You know, what we're going to end up doing the same people over and over again. And we were just vastly underestimating the amount of great writers of all different types. And then you start getting into people who are producing podcasts, storytelling podcasts and all kinds of things. You know, there's just like, it's pretty limitless. We could go on for many years still. And so we have a sort of running list of who's interested in what. And then there's obviously people that we're all interested in talking to. And then it's just a matter of who takes the initiative. Like we don't have a booker. So, uh, you know, like you guys, it's like, we just reach out to someone and sometimes I'll reach out to someone two or three times and not be able to get them. And then I'll just get frustrated and then I won't do it for eight months. And then Max will say, Hey, whatever happened with this person? And I'll say, if you want to try, go for it. And then he'll get them. So, uh, <laughs> and does that cause like contention amongst the ranks? No, I, we've no. literally never argued about, uh, about a guest. I mean, there's definitely ones that I've thought, Oh man, I, w I wish I I wish I'd gotten there first. I mean, we had one, uh, Mother Jones did this incredible investigation of private prisons, this by its writer, Shane Bauer. And, you know, that the day after it came out, Aaron and I had both devoured it. And I was like, I'm going to try to get him on the podcast. And Aaron was like, I already emailed him. Like, <laughs> you know, it was just so good. And like, you're so desperate to talk to that person and know like, how the fuck did you do this? I'm like, so, how did this come about? I'm so glad that you brought that up because uh, Kyle was just telling me about that story this weekend. And two days later, you guys already have an interview up with the author. And I mean, that's the reason why everybody loves long form. You know, it's, uh, it, that it, so that's a that's actually an interesting topic. How often are you able to you know get a guest that's so timely? Um, you know, you had Nicole Hannah Jones right after her her cover story in the New York Times Magazine. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that was just that was blind luck. Like I've wanted to get her for a while. Like she's amazing. Like I love her stories. I mean, they're just she's just doing something that that no one else is doing. I mean, very few other people are doing. And the only reason I had not emailed her, and then the reason I emailed her is she she tweeted that she had just closed the story and then she was like, now I've got a week off. Like I'm going to see Beyonce. And I kind of like pounced in that moment and emailed her and said, Hey, it seems like you might have a little bit of free time. Just like <laughs> not what she probably wanted from, you know, tweeting that she had closed her story, but I actually didn't think a lot of times people close stories and don't come out for weeks. So I didn't think, Oh, it's going to be, we'll talk about this story. Uh, but then it was out, it was actually closing for that week. So it just happened to come out like the morning that we were talking. So I kind of looked into that one being timely. Other cases, if there's a story that's out that we feel it's really big that someone wants to, one of the three of us wants to do, we'll try to get in touch with someone and do, we do occasionally these like one off, you know, they're usually a little bit shorter and they're primarily about that story uh, and sort of what went into that particular story. Has the process of booking those guests gotten easier over time as your audience has grown? And like, what, how does the process of booking guests differ now than it did when you started out? It's basically the same. I would say it's gotten a little easier among non super famous writers. Like most magazine writers generally, I think I've heard of the podcast at this point. So there's a little less bending over backwards to say, you know, here's the list of the people that have been on and here's what it's about. Like there's a lot of people you just send them a note and they're like, oh yeah, I listened to the podcast or I've heard it or I've heard of it at mm -hmm. least. So that's definitely helpful when it comes to this sort of like higher tier of just really famous people. Uh, they've, you know, it's the same. It's, it's just sort of lightly pestering them. It's sort of, you know, 
sort of flattering them sometimes. Uh, <laughs> on occasion. They don't, on occasion. Um, I mean, most of these people don't need that, but you know, just, but trying to explain to them that it's going to be different. Like these people are, you know, you, you take someone like, uh, Malcolm Gladwell or now Ta-Nehisi, although Ta-Nehisi, when we first started, he was not super famous, um, which is one of the amazing things about that series of interviews to me. You've had him um, on the show three times, right? Yeah, we've had him on three times. And the first time, uh, I went up to his apartment in Morningside Heights and interviewed him and he was, I mean, in my world, in the magazine writer world, he was a big deal because he is it's so incredibly talented and he was writing for the Atlantic and he was writing cover stories. He'd written a big cover story on Obama, but it's, you know, a, a couple of years later, it's a whole different. He's a rock star now. Now. Yeah. I mean, now people invoke his name in ways that I think are probably, uh, I mean, he's written about that are, that are difficult for him to be sort of injected into things just to, because of who he is. Is he the only guest that you've had on the show more than once? I think, think he's the only he's definitely the only guest we've had three times um i mean i've been on the i've been on you've twice. been you've been on twice i, I was <laughs> somewhat, gonna ask you about that later um, somewhat odd uh but yeah i've been on twice we may have had one or two other people on twice i can't remember okay i, I actually looked at this today and i think that you and tnc are the only the only two that have been on multiple times but but i don't know that for sure um i listened to max's interview with heaven and tracy from another round and heaven and i actually i'm sorry i don't remember which one said this but um one of them said that it is very weird because they can now go to bars and have people recognize them and act you know like they know them intimately um just because they have been listening to them speak you know right in their earbuds for uh you know about a year or two now um and you, you guys have, you know, a similar audience in, in the respect that you have these people that are just evangelizing the hell out of everything you do and look at you as, you know, these like creators of, of genius content. Um, have you had experiences where people come up to you and, and act like they just like know you? And, and I know that this stuff happens all the time on Twitter where people are just, you know, they feel comfortable enough to just kind of invoke whatever they want to um, and, and speak to you however they choose but is that weird? Uh, I mean, that doesn't really, that doesn't really happen. I mean, really like at a, maybe at like a, a book party or like a, like a media party kind of thing. Uh, which I, I have a very young child, so I, I rarely go to such things, but, um, you know, once in a while someone will be like, Hey, you're the, you know, I, I love the long form podcast or, you Mm -hmm. know, I'll just a friend of a friend or something who, who likes it, but it's, it's, I mean, we have a, we have a great audience and that's very exciting, but it's just not at the level. Like it's actually ta talked about this on the podcast, but like the times when I've been on TV, like if I, I, if I'm on like Rachel Maddow or something talking about some story that I've written, like the next day people on the subway will recognize me. Like one person wished me a happy birthday like a stranger <laughs> on the subway. Uh, was it your because, birthday? Yeah. Well, it, it had been my birthday when I was on the show. Okay. So like the next day. <laughs> Uh, someone's like, Hey, happy birthday. And it's like, that's a different level of, uh, you know, sort of like public recognition. But for someone like me, that would pass in a day. Cause I'm very, very rarely on, on TV, but for the podcast, it's like, it's the best. I mean, if someone does, if someone says, I love, I love what you do, that's, that's the best feeling. And it, it doesn't actually happen that much. And, you know, anyone who, who also writes things that appear on the internet, like endures some level of like 
shit taking shit from people mm-hmm. so it's really nice when people uh like something that's one of the reasons that why i love doing the podcast is like people have complaints about it for sure the uh a variety of different complaints but uh but a lot of people like it cool i mean so you 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 kind of touched on this before that the the podcast is not your full-time job um so you uh are the editor of the atavis magazine can you tell everybody you know what that is yeah, the Atavis magazine is we're uh, a magazine of narrative journalism, narrative nonfiction, uh, long form journalism, if you want to use that term. Um, we're five years old this year, and we produce one story a month. So we really focus on finding you know twelve stories a year that have a certain amount of depth to them, that have a certain amount of uh, character development and, you know, plot twists and surprise and tension, like all the things you want in a great, uh, narrative tale. Uh, and we, we run them pretty long. So they're usually between 10 and 20,000 words. Some of them are as long as 30,000 words. Um, and then we sort of design them up in a particularly digital way online with oftentimes with some video or audio or, you know, uh, animation, like we've done all sorts of things over the years, but it's sort of a mix of high-end digital design with this sort of uh, very uh, curated, I guess you could call it, like one story a month approach. It's sort of like a magazine where the feature well ate the entire magazine and then like one story ate the entire feature well. Like there's only one mag- one story in every issue. Can you talk to us a little bit about where the Atavis came from and what drove the decision to focus on the elements of digital design that you guys have done with it? Well, it really started out of my experiences as a freelancer and working for Wired Magazine and then one of my co-founders, Nick Thompson, was my editor at Wired Magazine and then he went to The New Yorker and we started talking about, I had this particular story for Wired Magazine uh, where I tried to disappear for a month. And it was like a big story for me and it ended up being a big story for the magazine. And at the time, the sort of level of digital design that was applied to feature stories when they went onto the web was just extremely minimal. It was just like nothing like it is today. And so we sort of had this idea that would combine doing that type of long story, but designing it the same way that print designers design something like Wired Magazine, which is incredibly lovingly designed by brilliant print designers who think about the experience of reading that story. And we wanted to apply that same thing online. Now, nowadays, a lot of people do that. But this was back in 2009, 2010, and it wasn't really, uh, it was not only uncommon, it was almost non-existent for anyone to take that approach. So we originally, that's how we wanted to do it. And then we, we got a third co-founder, his name is Jeff Rabb, who's a, who's a coder and designer. And so he sort of became the person that actually was able to put our ideas into practice. Now, you, I mean, you kind of touched on this, but what went into the decision of creating this on your own as opposed to you know, going to a legacy institution and using their resources to you know, help them create it? Well, it was partly just... I didn't really know how to do that. Like I didn't know, I'm actually not a great uh, kind of networker type business person. So it it didn't occur to me to sort of go to uh, magazines and say like, hey, let us do this or like give us some money to do this. And there's also just, I had been through, you know, we were already, we had started Pop-Up Magazine and in that experience, I had sort of started to see 
just how fun and how valuable it can be to just do something on your own. Like in this day and age, you can just do things on your own and that's really exciting. And it's more exciting than being part of a larger institution in many ways, even though uh, the resources may be harder to come by. So for us, it was just like, I mean, we took almost a year and a half to even come up with exactly what it was going to be, which you just wouldn't have that kind of luxury. You know, we were freelancing, we were, we could do it on the side and it's always been a very, somewhere between a project and a business in some ways. And, you know, we, we kept it very small. So I like independence. I like, I don't really like having some overlords be able to tell me what to do. So I think that's (laughs) primarily what, what drove it. Well, I mean, you, you, you know, we're being an entrepreneur and building this platform, but at the same time, you're still a writer and an editor. So like, how do you reconcile the two and, and manage your time properly? Uh, so it's possible you could argue that I don't manage my time properly. <laughs> I'm not sure that it's uh, necessarily uh, given fact that I am good at managing my time, but for a long time, I haven't written that much, uh, over the last five years. I mean, I wrote two stories for that of magazine, and then I wrote this series for that of magazine that just came out in the spring. But, you know, for a couple of years, I was basically not doing much writing. I mean, much to my chagrin, that's what I love doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then editing wise, we've been fortunate to have some really fantastic editors. So we always have an executive editor who's really doing a lot of the primary editing. I don't do much of that anymore. I did at the very beginning. So it's sort of partly delegating, partly probably not doing as much as I should in one area or another, whether it's the editorial or business, like I'm always being pulled in different directions um, and just trying to like solve whatever the most urgent problem is. I remember, uh, I think it was episode 45 or something on long form where, um, it was the first time that you had a writer on the show who also had a day job and you all seemed like shocked, uh, that somebody was able to, to do both of those things. Um, so, I mean, kudos to you because I mean, Atavis seems like a day job. Um, yeah, but it, 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 t- it ties into your earlier question because it's a day job, but it's, it's my day job. Like yeah. I also get to decide, uh, what days I'm doing what. So if, if it was part of something larger, like I probably couldn't do that. So the spring, you know, I was going to Israel to do reporting for several days and then spending days and days just holed up in my house, like trying to write this story. And you wouldn't have the luxury to do that as, you know, a different in a different type of configuration. So that's one of the benefits of of being independent is you can also figure out how to organize your time. Has the has the business aspect of it changed how you write it all? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the whole the whole setup of it is that we allow writers to write somewhere in between a standard magazine feature and a book. You know, generally closer to magazine feature length by a good bit than than closer to book length but there is something really interesting about being able to write at that length and and still get the kind of editing that you would get at a magazine so you just can structurally do different things if you're if you're not squeezed into that like 4500 to 5000 word feature well slot if you've got 15000 words you can really open up on some characters now then the the flip side of that is like you have to watch out for indulging that you're not taking a story that really should be 4,500 words and turning it into a story that's 15,000 words. So it's tricky, but I think I've really liked having that space. 
So where does the money come from? Like, how do you pay your writers? Um, it's a mix. So we, you know, over the years, we've sort of done all sorts of things. But, you know, we have a combination of we have some investors that we got a little bit into after we started. They were a year and a half after we'd started it. Um, we got some investors. Then we also have we make money from the stories themselves. We have some subscribers. We also sell the stories individually. We also option stories for film and TV, and we've had some pretty good success with that. And then we also have the software platform that the whole thing is built on, which we, which other people pay us to use. So that's kind of like the main engine of the business is we have other magazines and individuals and organizations and nonprofits and brands, all sorts of uh, outfits who are using it to tell stories in a variety of ways. And that all of those things combined are what we try to put together to make it uh, sustainable. Um, that's an interesting way to sort of develop this platform. Do you feel like that gives you more freedom to to try different forms of content than you might otherwise if you were solely dependent on the writing? Yeah, I mean, it's good and bad. I think the, the good part about it is that we're not driven by advertising and we don't actually have to deal with any of the issues that advertising driven publications have to deal with. So we don't have to deal with uh, putting those from around the web links at the bottom of our stories, which are always so <laughs> ridiculous and jarring to read like a brilliant story in some magazine. And then at the bottom have it be like 10 surprises that <laughs> in your area, you know, they're always like, so what's the company? So it's out, outbrain or something. Outbrain. Out yeah. It's one of them. Yeah. 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 Um, 10 celebrity slip ups. Like they're, they're just like sometimes so, uh, so out of line with like what you've just <laughs> experienced, but things like that, where, I mean, those are done for very good reasons. They're good money makers for online publishers. Uh, that's how you make the economics work. And we're trying this other model. So we don't have to deal with that. On the other hand, like that revenue is good revenue. And it's like revenue that online publishers can count on. And ours is sort of a bigger mix and at times a bigger struggle to try to make it work because we're not doing that sort of reliable, like click through kind of stuff where you can, you can, you know, try to get Facebook to drive you a bunch of people and traffic and make that work. So each one has their ups and downs. I think the real advantage of ours is we've never done anything that we didn't want to do. Like we've never published anything that we were like, uh, well, we just got to, we got to put this out because you know, that's what brings in the clicks like game of Thrones recap. That's what you got to do. Like John Oliver clip, like that's what makes it work. And we've never done any of that. Um, but you know, uh, if we struggle as a business, then you could say, well, you You're should not be really doing that. Yeah. Um, I think uh, to me, one of the shining examples of the success of your platform so far is the mastermind, um, which I feel like the fact that we've gone almost 30 minutes now not talked about it is sort of a disservice because of how good it is. Um, but I think we should talk about that as, you know, one of the examples of something that seems different from most of the magazine articles I've been reading lately. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Can you can you? sort of describe to us how this idea happened? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're right that it, it's something that because of the way we're set up and because we have our own software, we we're able to do these kind of things. And the idea actually was a year. I mean, it was two years in the making for me in terms of reporting, but it was going on a year in the making in terms of us thinking about how we were going to do it. So the idea was to do a serialized story 
that would you know draw on some of the concepts that were so successful in you know serial the podcast in event later much later uh, making a murderer like this sort of idea of or even the fictionalized uh TV show, The Wire, or whatever. This idea of having this episodic approach, taking a story of telling it over those episodes and trying to pull people along. And we were sort of trying to figure out what the best story would be. And I had been trying to to report this story about this guy, Paul LaRue, who's a was a large-scale drug dealer and and arms dealer based in the Philippines and has an insane backstory where he started as a programmer and he made a fortune doing online prescription drug sales in the United States. And then he parlayed that into sort of massive amounts of international crime. He sort of built his own cartel from the ground up. And the story just happened to sort of lend itself perfectly to that format. Like even telling it as a one, one go feature at 15,000 words or 20,000 words or something, it was just, it had a lot of complexity to it. And it had a lot of sort of strands that that came off of it that I felt like eventually I could tie back up. But if in the course of one sitting, it'd be very, very difficult to make that happen. So it kind of, it felt like it lent itself to that. And then we started thinking about design. How would it be designed? How would we, we do the episodes and uh, what kind of approaches would we take in terms of visuals? And uh, yeah, it took a few months to, to come together. And then we sort of made the somewhat fateful decision for ourselves was that we were, which is that we were going to do it weekly with one break in the middle, uh, and that we wanted them to be fresh. So we wanted to write them. I was going to write them as we went, which I think three or four into the seven that eventually appeared, we realized was an incredible nightmare in terms of how much work it was. <laughs> so we ended up just, uh, I feel like we're all still recovering from, uh, I got really bad, like repetitive stress problems in my hand, literally just from <laughs> typing the, the words. There are just too many words to type. I mean, um, this is uh, just, but I, I feel like this is one of those stories where you read and I imagine that there's probably 70,000 more words somewhere on the cutting room floor that just didn't make it into the story. Like this is, it reads like there's so much more going on than you even got through in seven parts. Yeah, I think we calculated something like that I wrote maybe like 85,000 words and eventually 50 ran, something like that. Wow. I think that was the, the, the ultimate conclusion. But yeah, I mean, there's, and uh, I mean, depending on the editor, like it could have been cut down more, like who knows? Like I'm actually going to write a book about it. So I now can use all of those cutting room floor uh, <laughs> words, hopefully, uh, in that. But yeah, it was, uh, there was, it was hard to even figure out how to construct this story because it was so elaborate and it just kept going these places where you would say, Oh my God, I can't believe that. But it would take a lot of setup to get to that place. So there was a lot of sort of me trying to map, you know, how you could get from one place to another. Well, especially since you start, when you start reading the story, you're in the Philippines, right? Um, and it seemed like the, the, I think, I think the story starts with the murder of a, uh, Filipino real estate developer, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, from, real estate agent, yeah. Yeah, and then from there, it just it builds outward. It, it's required reading for anyone who's interested in things like Serial and um, uh, How to Make a Murderer on Netflix. Did you guys, was that partially the inspiration for how you tackled it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a little less how to, uh, 
wait, what's the HBO one? <laughs> Making a Murder. Uh, Making a Murder. Making a Murder, yeah, yeah. Um, a little less that just because it came out like, I watched it relatively close to when we started and we were already kind of a little bit locked in in terms of what we wanted to do. But, but yeah, it was a, sim a similar idea. I mean, partly the idea that uh, each, each one of the episodes hopefully could be read on its own to a certain extent not like not entirely like it's just a freestanding story but that it was compelling in its own right but then that when you got to the end you would feel like wow i would i would read another one of these right now like if it wasn't out like you'd be like when is the next one coming out which is how i felt you know the, particularly the first season of serial that's how everyone felt that's why a gazillion people listened to it is you were just like give me more of this now and we wanted to try to see if we could create that same feeling uh, through in, you know, in a written form. So many of the stories that you publish in the Atavist have, you know, a cinematic feel to them or are just, you know, kind of unique to what else is out there in the long form ecosystem. Do you solicit these pieces? Do people pitch you? Uh, you know, what's that process look like? Cause I mean, you're obviously limited as to shelf space each year cause you only publish 12 pieces. And also on that same note, you know, how do you decide if you get to write the piece or not? Well, most of the pieces are pitched. So I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's pretty high in terms of, it might be 90% of the pieces that we published have been pitched to us. Wow. Because oftentimes there are pieces that uh, a person has been obsessing over, a writer has been obsessing over for a while and maybe doesn't have a home for it because it's either too elaborately narrative for the space that most magazines have, or uh, it's not pegged to any news events. So one of the things that frees us up is that we don't peg things to news events and we don't actually care if something's current. You know, we like to do current stories as well, but that's not a requirement. So that means that stories that people might pitch to a great magazine, you know, New York or the New Yorker or GQ or whatever, where an editor might say, I love this story, but why now? Like what, why, yeah. how is it why relevant? Is it, yeah. Why should this be in GQ next month? And you know, we're, we're a little bit looser on that front. Like we want a reason why this story needs to be told. Like what is the value in telling it? It can't just be a forgotten story, but that enables us to maybe get stories out of writers pockets that they might otherwise not be able to place. And then, you know, I have those too. So the, the ones that I've written have been ones that I felt that way about that I I've been sort of, you know, ruminating over or digging into for a really long time. And then in other cases, if we have an idea and we want to farm it out, it's never going to be to me. Um, first of all, we're going to farm an idea out. Honestly, it's going to be to a, a female writer. It's not going to be to like a white dude, which is me. So, uh, we, that that's just part of like trying to, trying to, uh, balance out the, the bylines and make sure we do. So we hardly ever farm out stories to, to male writers. But anyway, we don't need another story by me. Like if and I have an idea, I'm happy to do it. But, uh, otherwise, uh, it does, my voice needs to be like pretty minimal in the magazine. I feel like that's something you're trying to do with the guests for long form as well. Right. Make it more inclusive of different kinds of people. Yeah. We always pay attention to it. Um, you know, I would say we don't succeed necessarily to to our own satisfaction all the time, um, but it is something that we pay attention to with every guest. I mean, with every year, like we're taking stock of of you know who's been on the podcast and how does it feel. Mm -hmm. I think you're at a disadvantage um, if you've got three guys as the hosts of the podcast because you're already you know 
people are turning it on and they're hearing like the same three guys over and over again. So Kyle and you know, I have that issue like, as what, well. What about like two? What if it was just two guys? Yeah, well, if it was two guys, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I guess you're you're set. It's it's no, so, but it's one of these funny things because people. I think that that's definitely a complaint. I know that people have even friends of ours, uh, but it's it's a product of something that started more as a project of like people who worked in the same. We all were sharing office space, and like we had a studio there that we could use, or we had a place that we could turn into a studio, and so we just did it, and no one was listening, and mm-hmm. you know then. But when then when it comes to a bigger thing, and more people listen to it, you know that really grates for some people, but. Uh, we are kind of stuck with this format to a certain extent. I mean, you could argue that we could change it, but um, anyway, yeah, it's something that we definitely, we think about, we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that we're, we're focused on as much as we can. Yeah. It's something that, that we're trying to do as well. And um, I mean, we're succeeding to an extent, but uh, you know, we have a long way to go. Um, you mentioned something before about how you don't really care if a topic is newsy um, or newsworthy or news of the day, uh, which is kind of funny because, you know, the long-form journalism you do at Atavist is kind of, you know, the antithesis of, like, a hot take. Um, and I know that that's something you guys talk about all the time on the long-form podcast. Uh, so what do you, would you know, just a, a little capsular review of what you think of the hot take. Give us a hot take on hot takes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by, my very, by my very dislike of hot takes, it would be hypocritical for me to even... <laughs> give you my opinion you're just trying to trap me it's it's what we do here you're trying to trap me to give me an opinion the writers um, who don't write uh well no i, mean, I, I so don't I, like i uh, i don't like opinion writing that much and uh, but i don't i'm not a person who's like railing against it uh like i also know what it's like to run try to run a business you know and try to run a publishing business in this era so certain things work online and and people do them for that reason so you know i don't go around disparaging people for what they do and and when you read something an opinion piece that's that's brilliant you know you can't argue with it and there's amidst everything that's happening there's also brilliant writers working online so uh you know my it's just not my it's not my thing like if i'm assigning stuff I wouldn't even be good at assigning that. So I, I just, I just that, had to ask you about that. I knew that you weren't going to like that question. I but. think so. This is something that we've asked so far. I think you're the the fifth journalist we've asked, and everyone gives this roughly the same thinly veiled um, dodge. <laughs> just no one, <laughs> no one wants to talk about it. There's so much well, disdain I'll, for I'll, it. I mean, but. I'll talk about it for real. Like, no, 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 no. I, I, I totally like. It gets funnier every time. I mean, it's it. it, I this was just me trying to ask it because I mean we do have we do we do have other hot take on hot takes. (laughs) I mean, there's just so many, there is so many awesome Um, ways that you could go with it. Anyway, uh, you have a book out in August that you edited and you are a contributor to. It's from W. W. Norton. It's called Love and Ruin, uh, which is based after or the title is um, on the title story of uh, of the collection, also named Love and Ruin, and. all of these stories uh, came from the Atavist. Um, it seems counterintuitive to publish that in a book. Can you talk yeah, about it why? It does. I mean, it seems counterintuitive uh, partly because we're really known, part of what we're known for is digital design, like how the stories look. Um, but it also felt really interesting to do this because we have, I mean, except for, we've done stories that are just 
video, predominantly video. So obviously those wouldn't work, but we also feel like we've, for, for prose stories, we've really tried to have a high level of design, but also a really, really high level of writing quality and reporting quality that goes into these stories. And so because the stories and the whole idea of what we did was sort of originally inspired by a print in many ways, uh, it kind of made sense to me to say, okay, let's pull them out of their environment and, and put them into a, a book. Let's strip, strip away from them everything that, that uh, makes them beautiful to look at and just give people the words. And I mean, hopefully uh, people will find that those, those words all hold up. I certainly think that they, that they do. Did you have to re-explore the stories at all as you were uh, creating this book? Yeah, we did. I mean, it was kind of a nightmare for me because it's, you know, cliche, like it's like picking one of your children or something, but our stories are very long. So not that many of them fit into a print. Like the one that I wanted to publish was like 800 pages. So uh, (laughs) that was not going to work. So we had to both choose between them and some of them we had to edit down a little bit, not, not a huge amount, but I mean, we're taking in some cases like 5,000 words out of a story Some because some of them were like 25,000 words. Yeah, it's significant. It's a big hit, especially when it feels finished uh, and really was finished. Like it came to a finished point and then you're sort of like trying to get more words out of it. And uh, that's that was a difficult process. Ultimately, I think uh, we have a great editor at at Norton, Tom Mayer, who helped uh, us. I don't think we would have been able to pick we would have we would have spent a year like trying to figure out which ones we were going to leave out because uh, I kept thinking like oh we can't possibly leave out this one um, but then we kind of consoled ourselves by saying well maybe we'll do another collection later and that we can go into that. So you, you know, are exploring a, a brand new medium for these stories. Are you expecting to find a brand new audience as well? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think there are still a lot of people in the world who uh, will not or do not read uh, long amounts of text online. I mean, people leave, read on Kindle and we try to reach people there, but uh, hopefully I think there's a lot of the book buying public that doesn't necessarily read sort of long magazine stories necessarily. Like they may not know about something called long form and they may see a book like this in a Barnes and Noble or where have you and uh, and get interested in it. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll, we'll reach outside of the people who just already, you know, subscribe to the magazine or read the magazine. Is it gauche if I ask you how many people read these stories on the website? It's not, it's not, I don't think it's gauche. I mean, that's the, it's the currency of our time. Mm-hmm. How many people read a story? Uh, I would say most of these stories in the book were, published at a time when we were just selling stories like we literally did not offer any stories for free so the numbers of people that read them were literally the number of people that individually bought that story it was a big barrier to entry on that yes tremendous barrier to entry (laughs) but in some cases like a very lucrative barrier to entry in our case you know Mm -hmm. some some of these stories sold you know 20,000 30,000 40,000 copies wow uh, on their own so that was pretty exciting at the time and then over time, for reasons that are probably like boring uh, internet publishing reasons, but I can talk about it if you want, we shifted that model to uh, to having a metered paywall. So like most of the things you can read for free, if you read a certain number of stories, then you'll hit a paywall and you'll have to pay to subscribe. And so only the more recent stories are under that. And those stories, I don't think actually any of the stories recent enough under that are actually in the book um, because we had to start putting the book together a while back. But 
those stories get read, I mean, anywhere from 20,000 readers in a story up to like close to a million. Like it's a huge range. And it's all about, does it catch a wave of interest on Reddit? Does it catch a wave of interest on Hacker News? Does it catch a, you know, does Longform promote it? Does uh, Dig put it on their front page? Does it end up in such a newsletter? Like it's a mix of uh, factors and sometimes you feel like you can control them, but most of the time you feel like you can't. So I have to ask you about your story in the book, The Oilman's Daughter. Um, and I, I, I want to preempt this by saying that you were interviewed about this story by Max Linsky, also on and of the long form podcast. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, he asked better questions than I ever will. Um, but I just wanted to touch base on, you know, an aspect of the story that was super interesting to me where you kind of placed yourself into the story as a character. Uh, so, I mean, you had a line in there that I'm, I'm not going to remember correctly, but it was basically, you know, I came uh, to speak with this woman who was a character in her own story and then I became a piece of that story myself or something. Um, yeah. How conscious of you uh, of this, of that like occurrence were you as you were writing the story, as you were researching the story, you know, when you finished it? Because uh, I think in the interview with Max, you said that you um, you always knew that you were going to be a part of it. Um, yeah. But- I mean, I, I always sort of feel that way. I, not always, but I often feel that way in, in stories, particularly these type of stories. Like it's different if you're doing sort of like a magazine profile and you're just going to profile someone and they've done something and you write about it and spend some time with them. But this type of narrative story where you're spending so much time with someone, like I spent so much time with Judith Wright Patterson in, for the story. There's a sort of like Heisenberg principle element to it where you, you, you kind of know that you're influencing them in a certain way. Like as many times as you want to say, you know, I'm not here as your friend necessarily. Like, I just want you to know, like I'm a journalist. Like you tell them that up front. like even in her case, I got worried. So I'd remind her in some cases that like, I don't, you know, I don't work for you. Like I'm not here to promote your story. Like I'm here to try to figure out the truth as best I can. And she wouldn't pay attention to that. And you can kind of, you can feel that in a lot of stories that you're, you're getting wrapped up in it. Now in this one, it was so explicit because I could tell that she was going and telling other people about me. You know, I would meet people that she knew, friends or people who had heard her story or lawyers who were dealing with her story. And they would say, oh, you're the writer who's going to do the thing about her. So she was using that in a way to kind of bolster her credibility. And that to me meant like it would be, I I don't know if it'd be dishonest, but it would be weird to not acknowledge my role in what happened. And I... I think that can feel indulgent and I'm always worried about a first person situation feeling like overly indulgent. Although I've done so much first person stuff. Someone could argue like I I clearly don't listen to that feeling, (laughs) but, uh, I mean, I do, I do like that. Um, I do like readers feeling that way. Like I like readers feeling like I'm their guide through this, not necessarily that I am an omniscient, uh, narrator who showed up and gathered information and packaged it and gave it to you. Like, even in a story where it's not first person, I almost al- I always, I would include something that's like, you know, they said to me or, you know, I was there. Like, I want to be in there somewhere just to acknowledge, you know, this is me. This is my interpretation of this story. It's not, uh, it's not like a newspaper story. It's not like I'm dropping in and like, uh, it's, I was never there. 
Well, I, I will say it, it kind of, you know, came out at the end as if it was a revelation that you felt like you were a piece of the story as opposed to you feeling like you had been there the entire time. Well, I also, I wonder if it got you into trouble at all with the mastermind where, I mean, that's a story where I feel like making yourself a character actually becomes a liability. Well, there was, in that one, it's a matter of, first of all, you're right about the old man's daughter. The, uh, the approach to writing about it is a little more, uh, a little more like license, literary license than like probably how I was feeling. Like that idea of saying, uh, I suddenly realized is actually like a feeling that was building up over a long period of time. Um, but in the mastermind, there was more a matter of the story was very complex and it was almost hard to keep track of the names and places and this guy's doing this. And now there's this guy, John Nash, but the thing about John Nash is that's not his real name. And, and there I was actually pushed a lot by the two editors that worked on the story, Katya and Bachko and Joel Lovell to kind of put myself into it more as someone who was literally guiding you through the story, literally saying like, I dug here and found this. The way I found this was this was revealed to me this way so that someone could feel like they had something to hold on to through the whole thing. So it was less, that was less like I should be a part of the story because I'm influencing the story. Although that was also true, uh, especially when it came to the legal stuff, but it was more just like as a device to make sure that people hopefully make sure that people didn't get lost. Oh, I think as a device, it worked. I mean, it worked so well, and it brings you so much further into th the story than I think you would be otherwise. What I, what I meant by liability was like, I when I read this story, I worry for your safety. <laughs> oh yeah, that <laughs> because because of who you're reporting on, and the places that you're going and the people that you're interacting with, who most you can't even name. That's I mean, I worry about you as a character in the story and how you relate to Larue. Yeah, that's. I, I tend not to worry about that too much, uh, partly because worrying about it. I mean, you can either you, you have to think about it. I think I I think about it. I try to be careful and not not be stupid. Um, you know, like if I'm meeting, I was meeting some person in Larue's organization who I knew was participated in certain like violent acts, uh, possibly murders. Like I'm not gonna meet that person and like. Uh, some kind of like remote place. Like I'm going to meet that person in a public place and, you know, just basic, uh, not being, not being stupid about it. But on the other hand, like there's no point in doing that story. If I'm going to go to the Philippines and then be like, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust, like, who is this guy? Like for the most part, these people are not out to get me. Like they're all out to get each other and they all have problems with each other and they're snitching on each other to the cops and to the U S government. And so, I don't generally think that they present like a huge risk to me, um, mm. particularly because I'm dropping in and out. Like if I lived in the Philippines, it'd probably be a different situation. So I worry a little bit about the fixer that I used um, and try to be careful around that. But for the most part, I don't, it, it doesn't feel that dangerous to me. It's so, I mean, it's it's cool to hear you talk about how you deal with it just because that's a situation. I mean, I'm not a journalist and I can't imagine how what it would take to deal with that level of scrutiny in terms of the people that you're dealing with do you find yourself having to take extra security precautions just doing normal reporting type stuff when you're doing a story like this i sort of did i mean it depends on the place like 
when I went to the Philippines, I felt like I didn't, I mean, you, I'm going into a place that I don't know very well. And I also don't know what the situation is. So I don't know who's out there that used to be in this criminal organization, who's left and like, what do they want? And am I finding them? Like, who am I talking to? And oftentimes you don't really know what someone's role was. So, you know, in some cases I did try to be careful in terms of like, uh, you know, varying my route coming in and out of my hotel and like things like that, uh, which are things that I heard also from other reporters who I interviewed who had worked on the case who like eat much more than me had have their lives literally threatened by these people. And that's the sort of things that they would do as well. So there was a little bit of that. Um, but mostly it's like really hard to get people to talk. Like the biggest struggle of the whole thing is getting people to talk about something that they were involved in that was incredibly illegal and oftentimes like, disgustingly uh, amoral and to get them to tell you what their experience was and then to try to figure out if you can trust that account. So really like all my biggest questions were like, how do I find this person? Can I get them to talk? If I show them at their office, will they talk? If I keep calling them, if I email them, should I have my fixer do it? Like those are the things you're consumed by and like them coming to like beat me up or something or shoot me outside the hotel is like actually not something that I've spent much time thinking about because it seems like so far-fetched relative to like I can't even find them how does it feel being the one interviewed as opposed to interviewing at other people I don't like it um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it gives me like empathy like every time I'm interviewed I think the funniest thing is oftentimes when you're interviewing people you you kind of wonder why they do it. I mean, this is more true for stories for me than it is for the podcast. But oftentimes, I mean, especially like this mastermind story, when I eventually did find people who were telling me stuff, I was just like, why are you telling me this? Like, <laughs> I just want to be like, you're making a big mistake. Like, why are you trusting me? People are saying like, I could get killed for telling you this. So be really careful. But, and then telling me something like, you should just stop right there. I you know, feel don't, don't say about after the butt, you know? Um, I feel but like... Then when it, Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I feel like being a journalist kind of invites that. Uh, there's like that, that added like dangerous aspect um, when you're talking to someone who, who's a writer. Uh, I have a friend who, who writes for you know, a fairly well-known website, and you know, he's in, like an old high school friend, and you can't go you know, to a Thanksgiving party or a Christmas party without uh, everybody spilling their guts to him every single time because they want to impress him, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, and everyone it's that, that's what I was going to say about the uh, being empathetic about the experience is no matter who you are, if someone starts asking you questions, like interesting, good questions about yourself, and they've obviously like looked into what you do and done research about it and read what you've written. If you're a writer, like you can't help, but both be flattered by it. And nobody ever asks you that stuff in your real life. Like most of the people in your real life, are not that interested. Like I, I recently went like a lot of my closest friends are friends that I grew up with. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta and I was, I was just home and a friend of mine said, uh, Oh, you should read this thing on, uh, on Nate Silver's site. I don't know if you, you probably don't like Nate Silver, but like you should, you should read this thing. I was like, what do you mean? You don't like Nate Silver? And he's like, you don't like statistics and stuff. I was like, I just interviewed Nate Silver. He's like, you interviewed Nate Silver. I said, yeah, for, for the podcast. He's like, what podcast? <laughs> I was like, I do this thing called the long form podcast. This is possibly my closest friend in the world that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. Like most people don't like, they're not paying attention to this stuff. Like there's too much stuff in the world. So 
when someone really that's one of the secrets of the long form podcast is like we read a ton like i read everyone's stuff and like when someone realizes you've invested the time uh like you guys have read my stories and i feel like wow i want to like tell you something interesting because you've taken the time to read my stories and it's just like that's a rare a rare thing and you end up talking way more than you you expected to so even if you want to go in and be really cagey and have like canned answers oftentimes you just kind of end up on these on these tangents because it's fun to talk it's fun to have someone mm -hmm. ask you questions well that's the, that's the whole idea you know uh, you said it yourself earlier uh, that your entire job as as a host on long form is to ask people the questions that they're not normally asked and you know that's what we're trying to do well, the, the one question I would ask that's sort of a goofy question, but I would be interested to know the answer is what question would you ask you? And an, I think another another way to phrase it is what question do you wish, wish you'd been asked in the past? Hmm, I'm never good at that one. I feel like I uh, there's nothing in particular that I want to talk about. That, so... <laughs> like I'm actually like pretty introverted, uh, but like I'm saying, like that's one of the interesting things about being interviewed is like you can take a person who's introverted and then ask them questions about themselves, and like suddenly they're just they're just off and running. But so if I sit and think about it, like I don't really want to be asked anything. Like I, <laughs> there's not like I'm not I don't have a burning desire to sort of like talk about some some aspect of what I do. Like I really like asking other people about what they do. So. So I, I got nothing. I got nothing on that. I mean, if you'd ask me about soccer, like U.S. soccer, <laughs> that's a thing that I I really really like talking about. Oh, so man, I think I think we have to bring you back to talk about U.S. soccer, and I think we could talk about that on a separate podcast. <laughs> like I said, um, and I think we should tie back now to uh, sort of the road you started down with talking about your family and your friends back in Atlanta, and I think this is where we pivot to the story that you struggled to tell. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. Which is, you know, the reason that we all gathered here in the first place, but we've kind of been dancing around it a little bit. So do you want to give us a little bit of background about this story and where it comes from and what you've mainly struggled to tell? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say it's like formed enough to say it's like a story that I've struggled to tell. I would say it's 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 in that realm, but it's more like, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. My parents are both from Alabama. Um, and my, my sort of like ancestors go back in Alabama for a pretty long time, Alabama and Georgia. And so, you know, if you're, if you're like a white person who grew up in the South, like if you start digging into your family history, like you're, you're going to find racism. And the only question is like, are you going to find it like one second away? Or are you going to find it like a generation away? And like, how deep is it? And how how vitriolic is it? And uh, that to me has always been an interesting thing in my family, both like what I know about my extended family and, and, and relatives, but also like how my own parents like escaped that and like transformed themselves into completely different people coming out of that environment. And I've always wanted to do something about it, but it's a difficult, like, it's a difficult topic to, to take to your family, to try to dig up skeletons in your own family's closets. Um, and it's just a difficult thing to figure out the form that it should take. Um, so I spent a lot of time, time thinking about it, but I, more recently I'm 
I'm actually hoping to have some time later this year and I might actually pursue it. I have a kind of vague idea of, of what I might do. So is it, do you think it's more difficult to talk about that, you know, in, within your own family as opposed to, you know, like the slightly racist friend that everybody has or, you know, the kid from college that you, you know, were really close with who, you know, makes jokes that are in poor taste all the time. Um, is it different to know that it's, you know, the stock that you came from and the stock that you will, uh, you know, that will continue down your line? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the thing, like when you talk about, you know, like reparations is like the most obvious example when it comes to just sort of like African-American history in the United States and like Ta-Nehisi wrote that story about reparations and the, the common response to that, you know, among white people would be, uh, well, that wasn't me, you know, that was my ancestors. Like I'm not responsible for my ancestors or I'm not responsible for, you know, whoever did this, you know, a long time ago, the consequences of it. But when you look back in your own family and you find uh, aspects of that, like you have to grapple with it. Like what, what relationship did that play to into like where I am, like what I became, what opportunities I had, like the evolution of my family. And so I think it's a much more interesting and intimate thing to consider than something in the abstract. And so, you know, for me, I've, I've think about it all the time. Like one side of my family has a, this sort of like a distant relative. And there was always this sort of discussion, like, you know, were they like in the clan and it's not even a relative that I know or ever met, but, and then like some parts, people in the family would say like, no, 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 they just, they just kind of like went to the meetings as like a social thing and they didn't really know what it was all about. And just like, think about that. Like think about that person being related to you and what does that mean? And like, uh, how do you interrogate that? And how do you figure out what role that's played in, in your family? And there's a lot of that stuff. Like I said, like grew up in the South, there's a lot of that stuff. And I'm sort of fascinated with this. I'm like obsessed with this, interview that Chris Rock gave to, I think it was Frank Rich in New York Magazine. And he was talking about how uh, racism in America is always perceived as like, are like black people made progress in the United States, which is like a fucking ridiculous thing to say. I mean, he says it in a much more funny, articulate way, but it's like absurd because like the history of racism, he says something like, it's just the history of like white people becoming less crazy. Like they were like insane and then they're like a little less crazy than they were before. And really that's what you should investigate. Like that's what you should study. Like you should figure out why, why were they that way and why are they less that way now? And how can they become even less that way? Like that is the goal of when you're talking about racism. So that's kind of ties into this story. It's like, I want to understand and I haven't been able to understand because it's just a really hard thing to go ask about uh, and to like bring up with people who don't want to talk about it. It's interesting to hear that that is difficult when uh, like t probably two or three months ago you were traveling the world asking about contract murders and uh, international crime schemes that enveloped like a decent portion of that side of the world. Yeah, it's no. crazy. That, I mean, that's you're right. That's that's crazy. I mean, it it is harder though. It's it shouldn't be, but it is. It's it's definitely harder. No, it's like a symbol of how difficult that stuff is to talk about. I mean, especially because it involves your own family. I think everybody's got you know that racist uncle. Um, 
And it's I can't even imagine. So how do you go about starting to tackle something like that? Because it sounds like you're at least partially down that road now. Yeah, I've just been trying to think about the form, and I think in my audio might be the way to do it. I mean, I, the first step is just to take that step of asking those questions and maybe asking them on tape, and maybe a formal setting of an interview is a way to to make that a little bit easier, like professionalize it for me instead of making it feel like a personal thing. And like I, I had Nicole Hannah-Jones on the podcast and she said something about how it's amazing when you just ask people about race. You just ask the question that you're asking what they will say. Like you think that they don't want to talk about it, but actually they do want to talk about it. And if you ask the question directly, they will answer it. And I feel like that to me is like an approach that I should take. And, you know, I'll probably try to start by interviewing my dad. Like my dad has amazing stories of growing up in a small town in Alabama. And I mean, it's less like specific racism, but he has this amazing story about how before he went to college, he, the thing that they like hated in his community were like Catholics and Jews. And when he got to college, he literally was like, I can't even recognize the Catholics and Jews. Like I know there are Catholics and Jews here and I've heard that they're horrible but I don't even know who they are. And it, it was just this thing where he was like disbelieved, like everything that he had been taught. He was like, this is all bullshit. And it kind of like changed his life. So I feel like get, getting it because I think there's a, like a, a positive aspect to the story as well. And sort of sort of getting it from that angle and then working into like, okay, but like what happens if you go back? Like, let's try to figure out if we can, what people really felt and like why they felt the way they did and like what that means. Now, what are some of the barriers? Like, pretend you write this thing and, you know, it's out six months from now. Are you going to, you know, just openly share this with the people that you are writing or speaking about? Or are you going to try and just kind of, if they find it on their own, then so be it. But I don't want to put this in front of them because they may be offended by it. No, I mean, I don't think there's any point in doing something and then worrying about the people involved being offended by it. Like people get offended um, in lots of stories. Like people are mad at me who are in the mastermind and people are mad at me who are in the old man's daughter for different reasons, not even the reasons I expected. And so, but I mean, those people aren't sitting around your Christmas, like your Christmas dinner table. That's true. Although in fairness, like most of the people in the story also are not sitting around my <laughs> my 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 <laughs> that's fair because my immediate family is is sort of separate from a little bit from this and the, the main i mean the main challenge in it is that a lot of the people are dead like the people i would most want to know how they felt uh are dead um so it would be a matter of trying to trying to reconstruct and trying to understand what it is that they did believe um but i think there's a it's harder to get into it maybe than it is to get out of it i feel like once I got into it, I wouldn't worry so much about how people felt when it came out. Cause I don't, I mean, like I said, like in some ways you could say it like, oh, you'd be blowing up your family by tracing, you know, like was someone in the clan or, you know, things like that. But like everyone has that in their family, like not everyone, but like a certain slice of the population has that in their family. So yeah. it's like really representative more than it is kind of like my family's my family's not uniquely bad like they're not there's not stories of them you know doing horrible things necessarily but that's what makes it interesting i have to ask you about ghost set of watchmen did you read it i did not read it 
Okay. There's a scene at the end where it comes out that Atticus Finch uh, was going to clan meetings, and he claims basically, like, these people are going to be awful, so I'm going to, you know, they're my people, and I'm going to, you know, stick by them. Um, you know, there's a lot more minutia and details in, in that story, but that's the gist of it. And hmm. he, he sits there and tries to convince Scout that, you know, he's doing what's best for the community. Um, now, do you think that there's any truth in that? Uh, you know, with, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, you know, do you think that if you have like a great, great uncle or something that was in the clan um, and he did it because that's just what everybody else was doing at the time, um, does that make it any better? No, I don't think it makes it any better. I mean, well, I think there, there are, there are certainly degrees of moral culpability for, for different acts, like depending on what they are, but none of that happens. Like none of the worst things happen if they're not enabled by a large swath of people generally. Like, I mean, these days the clan is like pretty fringe, you know, in most places, like you, they're not like, uh, like the powerful force that they once were, they still like represent like people who want to do horrible things and sometimes do, uh, potentially do horrible things. But I think in that era, you know, you're talking about people that were, uh, taking violent acts or taking, uh, the most extreme approach. And they were enabled by a lot of people who didn't do anything to stop them, who could have done something to stop them. So, uh, there's certainly those other people are not lacking culpability. There may be a range of culpability for all of them. So no, I don't think it, I don't think it necessarily like makes it better. And it's worth asking what, you know, what would you do in that situation? Like, that's what makes a lot of stories interesting to me is like looking at a, someone who got wrapped up in a situation or was involved in a situation and asking yourself, what would I do in that situation? And it, you know, in some cases it might not be the answer that you would like it to be. Like, I would love it if I found one of my ancestors who was like a real hero, you know, really just like fought back against discrimination at a time when no one else was doing it. But that's probably not true. Like I would say, mm -hmm. uh, and if this, anyone like my dad is like that, but like, I'm not sure that my great, great grandfather was like that. I would be very surprised. And is that a story that you would write as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I, I think I would try to write or, or, or do whatever, wherever the story led. Cause I, I think what's most interesting is, is treating it like something to be understood. Uh, rather than just, I mean, it's true. Like the uncle who says racist things like that is a trope. And I have also like had some of that in my family, but it's more just like the evolution of a family may actually in some ways represent like the evolution of, uh, views and like, how does that happen? And, and what went into it? That, I mean, that's what I'd like it to be. I guess part of the reason why I've never done this story is like, that sounds like a very daunting, even as I'm describing it to you, it sounds like a very daunting thing to do to try to capture that. Uh, it sounds very difficult to me. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it whenever you do write this story. Um, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, they can find Atavist Magazine at magazine.atavist.com. That's the best place to find it. Longform Podcast, you can find it at longform.org. Uh, and then they can buy our book in all of their favorite booksellers. It's called Love and Ruin. And you are on Twitter and Facebook and all that good stuff? I'm on Twitter. 
I got a really tortured relationship with Twitter. Many people do. It's currently <laughs> on the, on the wane. It. Like I don't, I don't I used to be so into Twitter. This is a really long answer to your basic question of like, where can people <laughs> find me? Like now I'm going to tell you about my relationship with Twitter. I'm not really on Facebook. I exist on Facebook, but I don't use it. Yeah. You have, you have a tortured relationship with social media. So I guess we shouldn't yeah. ask about Snapchat, True. right? No, you can, you can, they, people can snap me if they want. <laughs> I like Snapchat. I like things that go away. It's, it's wonderful. Not, just it. not Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Stay away from Twitter. All right, well, no, thank I'm you. on Twitter. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. This was a ton of fun. And, uh, you know, one of the, on the first episode of the long form podcast, you said that, uh, you know, it, this was an excuse for you to talk to people that you admire and respect. And, uh, you have achieved that goal for us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. That was Evan Ratliff of Longform and Atavist. I am such a huge fan of everything that both of those organizations do, uh, partially because of the work that Evan does. So you should get on Google right now, check out Longform, check out Atavist, uh, check out the new book from W.W. Norton out uh, this past July. Uh, edited by Evan, uh, it has you know more than a dozen stories. Uh, some of the best writing that has been on Atavist in the last five years. It is absolutely worth checking out, and it's a cool new medium to read it on. Uh, keep an eye out for the Mastermind, which is a book coming from Evan uh, in the future. And uh, again, thank you so much for for stopping by, Evan. This was a ton of fun. You can find him online. Um, we also want to thank Sam Fanberg, who uh, helped us with some of the research for this episode, and Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. Uh, he wrote and recorded the music that you heard at the bottom in the top of the show and every other show. That's Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. Uh, and thank you, Kyle, for showing up and doing yet another episode with me. I do what I can. Always. So uh, make sure to uh, you know subscribe to the show and tell one friend that we exist. Uh, just you know, a single one. Just one. That's all it takes. Um, but one who is also single. Yeah, that works. Uh, you know, we, we don't have any forms of advertising or marketing. We rely on the generosity of your words, and we hope that you like the show. Uh, we love making it, but, you know, we need people to listen. So thank you so much, and give us a rating if you love it. Uh, you can find us online at www.podcast.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, all over social media. And we'll be back next week with another really special guest. Uh, I think this whole month is just filled with uh, some of our favorite writers of all time. So stay tuned to find out who it is. Who it is.